Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and you are listening to the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a normal book club, except you can show up without reading the book and you don't even have to share your snacks. This month, we are talking about Anne Helen Peterson's nonfiction book, Can't Even How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It is all about, yes, millennials and burnout. For the record, Anne defines millennials as people who were born between 1980 and 1995. And she describes burnout essentially as like that feeling of running a race that just never actually ends. You probably have it right now. Whatever that feeling is, yes, that is burnout. So the thesis statement of this book for people who maybe are too burnt out to read it is that because of timing and societal conditions, especially millennials have been primed to experience total burnout. And mentions, among other things, the fact that the 2008 recession was right around when a lot of us were finishing school, uh, let alone things like the rise of the contract worker and the prevalence of cell phones and, you know, astronomical student loan debt, just to name a couple of things. Um, At this point in the book club announcement, I would normally put a spoiler warning in, but this is a nonfiction book, so I feel like there are no spoilers in real life. (laughs) Um, Earlier this month, I will say I had a conversation with the author about the book. So if you want to listen to that first, that is totally cool. Today is our panel discussion, and we're also going to be hearing from some of you. So I am joined today by Avery Truffleman. She's the host of the new New York Magazine podcast, The Cut. Avery, hey. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. So you are a millennial, right? Uh, I am. I am. And you know, I'm actually I'm really proud of it. I've always been like this. Yeah. Even when people were like when hipsters were the fun thing to pan, I was like, I am a hipster. I am of my time and I enjoy the good things that we embody. So yeah, yeah, okay. fuck yeah, okay. I'm a millennial. That's awesome. I always feel like I'm a, I'm definitely a reticent millennial. I'm like, oh, I guess, fine. <laughs> good, we can, we can be good millennial, bad millennial. Exactly. So our other panelist is Indira Allegra. They're a sculptor and performance artist and they also teach art at Mills College in Oakland. Indira, hey. Hello, hello. So I hear you are not a millennial, which is very (laughs) exciting. I was born in 1980, so I'm right there on the cusp. Oh, cusp, yep. It's like millennial rising or whatever. Um, (laughs) um, To be honest, I I really feel that my sun sign is Gen X, (laughs) and I am fairly skeptical about everything we're about to discuss, so... (laughs) Okay. Okay. So yeah, I want to, I obviously want to dive into the book. That's kind of the whole purpose of this, but I also want to make sure that we branch out and just talk about burnout in general, because I, I don't know, maybe y'all agree with me. I don't think this was necessarily the perfect book, but I do think it's a really important conversation for us to be having. So to that end, I'm very excited about this. And, and my understanding, you two are friends, right? This is, you've talked about burnout before. Yes. I feel like it's been a latent theme in like most of our discussions. <laughs> really? Tell me more. Which is to say, I don't know oh. if we'd call it, bur- well, correct me if I'm wrong here, Andrea, but I don't know if we'd call it burnout as much as we'd call it like suffering under capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I think there's right? just this sense of doing what you need to do for your career, but also that there's no promised land to arrive at. So mm-hmm. what you got is what you got. And yeah, the race is, is unending. <laughs> well, and it's also the like, what you got is never enough either. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Indira and I talk about this a lot, especially because like they're an artist and performer and I'm a podcaster yeah. and a writer. And I mean, and Helen Peterson touches on this in, in her book a lot, but the fact that like we are the product, we are selling ourselves 
it is incumbent on us to come up with new ideas constantly. And some mornings you wake up and you're like, I guess I just have to keep thinking of new things until I die. And it's like, I don't. And also the idea of like being heard, being looked at. I don't know. These are like things we think about a lot. Yeah, I would also say like my takeaway from this book overall really is pointing towards a conversation about universal income and whether or not we value people who, whether or not we value people, whether or not they can work or not. And I think that we can look to, yeah, disability studies and a lot of writing that happens there to think about, um, yeah, what is what is the worth of a body and how do we assign worth two bodies. So for me, that was a huge takeaway. Yeah. Avery, did you have any like main takeaways from this book that we should talk about now? Um. Okay. Well, first of all, I will say I read this article when it first came out as an article on BuzzFeed. Oh, good. Yes. I was yes. like, I'm glad because yeah, yeah. It meant so much to me. I was like, holy shit. You know, that this is a part of me that's been missing and I get it now. Well, here, before you go any further, let me just say you were referring to the the BuzzFeed article about burnout that Anne Helen Peterson wrote. I think it came Mm. out in like January of 2018. It was. Yes. And essentially it's it 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 seems to me at least like it it was the thing that got her the book deal. Yes. It was Mm. called Why Millennials Are the Burnout Generation. It went super Duper, duper viral. Yes, like viral um, as fuck. Yeah. Viral, vir- <laughs> like really, um, but it, it just resonated with so many people, which is an interesting yes. thing. Well, okay, this is not what I was intending to talk about, but I do think it's interesting <laughs> if something is applicable to so many people, is that a feature mm. or a bug? Like, does that mean it's transcendent mm. or does that mean it's a form of snake oil, right? Everything's broken. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yeah. you you could say, you could argue that the the sort of universal applicability of this notion of um, burnout makes it sort of Emersonian and like, what is true for you is true for all mankind. But I guess the question that mm-hmm. we'll delve into with this is like, is it? Like, is it universally applicable? Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. thing, the thing mm-hmm. I was going to say is the, my like, weirdly enough, my takeaway from this article is something that I revisited when I reread the article to prepare for this conversation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in the article, which is so <laughs> funny. It reminds me, and like, again, she might have written about this in like subsequent follow-ups or something, but like my mom mm-hmm. gave me a copy of this book, A Woman of Independent Means, and she was like, it contains my favorite piece of advice, which is always buy yourself flowers. And then she reread the book and was like, that was not in the book. I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> so that's how I feel about it's this. Lizzo. She got it from Lizzo. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Most certainly. And um, so like my main takeaway that I remember getting from this article that was not there was about the lack of extracurricular sort of community, whether it's churches Mm. or rotary clubs Mm. or um, Mm -hmm. like ways to gather that do not require someone to be the host. Like, it is exhausting for someone to be like, come over to my tiny apartment. I have cleaned. I have cooked. You know, just this idea that, like, we're going to meet every week in this regular place. It's a basement. There is no food. And we're here to talk not about what we did for work or, like, what we learned about in school. But we're here to talk about God or how to be a better person or what it means to be a man. Like, these larger transcendent things that go beyond class occupation you know you could meet lots of different people from different backgrounds of different ages Mm -hmm. at um Mm -hmm. a mosque or a synagogue or a church Mm -hmm. and so weirdly enough like that i was like wow we are missing these sources of community Mm -hmm. and that was not in the (laughs) in the in the piece i don't think yeah well she does talk about that in the book a little though well and i was going to say that those are places where we can practice um expressing other parts of our humanity and i think that you know and i use the word practice specifically because it's something that we need to return to on a weekly basis or on a daily basis even with friends to remind ourselves that there are narratives in our lives with our which are like worth nourishing that don't have anything to do with work mm-hmm. yeah and i think as someone who is on the the cusp of the millennial 
generation. It's uh, take that disdain out of your voice. <laughs> is I there? Like I think it's fine. <laughs> is there disdain? <laughs> or are you projecting the disdain onto yourself? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a proud millennial. Anyway, sorry, you were saying, as someone on the cusp of being a millennial. <laughs> I just feel like, to be honest, I feel like a lot of the experiences which she described in the book are things that I've had to become acclimated to culturally within my career. Mm. And they're not actually ways in which, uh, or in which I was because I grew up very like poor and working poor, like mm-hmm. no one cared about what I was listening to on the, you know, like this whole thing around like comparing what you're listening to or mm-hmm. keeping what, up with the Joneses. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't really a thing. I think it's something that I kind of got hip to as a form of class passing within the mm-hmm. career that I have. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I think, I don't know, I mean, I think that's a big problem with this book in general, in general, is that when you talk about a generation, you have to speak in generalizations. Mm-hmm. And and I think she she certainly tried to get a lot of different perspectives in, but mm-hmm. I mean, her own perspective is, is very white middle class. And mm-hmm. even then, you know, I mean, as also a white middle class person, like having grown up in Alaska means a lot of the stuff was totally not relevant to me because there wasn't, you know, it's like everybody just wore Carhartts before Carhartts were cool. And, you know, like the mm-hmm. like the keeping up with the Joneses stuff, I think, was less relevant there because it was just such a weird, wild place to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. It Like it was interesting even reading it as a person who like has a lot of the same privilege that she does and still was like. I still don't relate to all of this, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. like I can still find exceptions. Mm-hmm. I actually think the book should be an anthology. I think the form is incorrect, mm. right? The reason the article was more successful is because she was speaking more from her own right. experience. And she talks about here wanting to decenter a white middle-class millennial experience, but she's unable to exceed herself in this mm. text. And she sort of embroiders other stories on top of what she considers to be the um, the base argument, which is the her white, fabric. yeah, which is her white middle class <laughs> experience, rather than sort of seeing all of the different experiences that everyone has to to mm-hmm. bring to the table as being equal in some way. And I feel like using an anthology format would actually allow that um, would actually decenter the things which she says that she wants to. Yeah, that would that would have been really beautiful. That's a great Before point. we get too much farther, I would love to listen to a voicemail. This mm-hmm. is one we got from Kristen. Hi, Nerdette. This is Kristen from Chicago. I wanted to respond to your question about what millennial burnout looks like. I am, by any accounts, a successful, high-achieving person. And um, I really am starting to feel burned out. I'm 35. I spent my 20s scrambling. And I just feel like I don't have any juice left. I have shared this feeling with others. And I think a lot of people just feel like they have been hustling for just so many, so many years. And while that certainly puts us in a good place in terms of having achieved so much at this age, I think it also means that we don't have a lot of energy left. So it's it's really hard. Um, I think it's really hard to face burnout when you've self-defined as a high achieving person. Anyway, I wanted to share my experience. Love the program and uh, thanks for everything you do. So Indira, do you remember reading the BuzzFeed article? Yeah, I read it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so you did not come across it two years ago when it came out? I did not. I was too busy working. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> One thing I was curious to ask you two about is, you know, I mean, I think we cannot have a conversation about burnout from our individual homes during a global pandemic without discussing the fact that that we're in a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I I was really curious to hear what you two think of, of how Anne works with that in the book. Essentially what happened is in the, in the preface or the introduction, 
she says essentially like I could have added a how the pandemic made this worse section in every chapter but instead I'm just going to say right here in the introduction that the pandemic is making everything worse did, mm. did y'all think that worked? Well, let me let me let me just say I ha- I was I was ready to come in guns blazing and be like, these are the problems I had with this book. But then mm-hmm. I had coffee recently with one of my dearest friends. We've known each other since third grade. She's an actual angel. She's a teacher. <laughs> and already it was the hardest job in the world. But now it is yeah. just ridiculous, ridiculous. Yeah. And she was. Um, I mean, she has to give participation grades to all her kids. Mm. I mean, it's wild. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I found myself quoting parts of this book to her. Um, mm. And it really made her feel better. There were parts she was like, mm-hmm. I just feel like all the other teachers are staying so much later and they're doing more. Mm. And I worry that, you know, maybe I don't care about these kids enough, but I don't mm. really like the school that I'm employed at. But, you know, I feel like I'm working for the kids and not the school. And I was like, buddy, let me tell you about, you know, productivity LARPing and this idea that we're all pretending to be busy all the time and we're all broadcasting these mm-hmm. versions of ourselves, you mm-hmm. know. That we it was something we were already doing over Twitter and Instagram, advertising how interesting our lives were. But now mm-hmm. we're doing it for work by necessity mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we work on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, you have to just take it with a grain of salt. I, I was, but basically, I found that this book ended up being a really useful pandemic toolkit to talk to my mm-hmm. insanely, insanely burnt out friend, and mm-hmm. that it did make a lot of these issues. Um, you know, because in, in the before times, it would not her job would not be considered a cushy desk job. You know, she would not mm-hmm. be dealing with these same sort of interactions. So in a weird way, mm-hmm. it all became so much more applicable now. And I don't think she had to bend over backwards to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the notes that I have for the author's note, <laughs> I said, Honey, what was happening in your life pre-COVID that you only now feel clarified? People put too much on the coronavirus. COVID is not clarifying. COVID is not an acne treatment to deal with blemishes in your complexion. Um, So I just Mm. kind of feel like people try and put stuff on, like if Corona was a friend of mine, I would be like, don't put shit on her. (laughs) (laughs) It ain't her fault. Leave Corona alone. I just feel like um, what is helpful about this book is that it it does help to validate experiences of suffering um, that folks may have been unable to speak to before because we live, I think we have to contend with dominant culture, which says that if you're poor, it's your problem. She speaks to this a little bit in the, the, Mm -hmm. the book. You know, if you're having trouble being the best parent it's your individual problem if you're having problems finding affordable housing it's your individual problem rather than thinking systemically so i do feel that there's a certain kind of relief that comes with just understanding that you know you're not the only one who's exhausted um and at the same time i do feel that it's unfair to put all of that onto the pandemic because it certainly is something that has been in the making for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I don't know. I mean, would you think it's fair to say the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of things that already existed? Yeah. I think if you were vulnerable before, yeah, like everyone's having a difficult time, but everyone was starting at a different baseline. So we're Mm -hmm. falling from different starting places. Exactly. Yeah. Like I th- as I was thinking about this and talking about this with different friends and I would like ask people to read her article and be like, does this resonate with you? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, when we're talking about burnout, what we're talking about is precarity. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. just like not as sexy and nor mm-hmm. is it new. You know, like if mm-hmm. you frame it as burnout, it's like oh, this thing I didn't realize is that like my nation won't take care of me. You know, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. not a sec- precarity is not a sexy idea. But I do think that this framing was really useful. I mean, in the same way that a lot of white people now are like, oh, my God, protesting. Like, what is this? (laughs) I think this is a useful way for a lot of white people to be like, like, oh, my God, I've been living in a state of precarity. 
you uh-huh. know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's listen to another voicemail. This is from Lydia. I am an older, one of the older millennials, and <laughs> I really responded to the conversation that you had about burnout. I would love to read the book, but I literally just don't have any time. Um, but yeah, I, I'm always constantly being in between this place of feeling like it's never going to be enough. I'm never going to be able to catch up. And I loved your conversation because you brought up several points that I have to continue to bring up to, um, like my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation that we were saddled with a lot of problems that they never had to consider. I'm really grateful for this conversation that you guys are having and continuing to have. Um, someday, maybe I will be able to read that book. Sweet Lydia, no pressure. (laughs) I don't know though. I mean, I, I think she's getting at something that I do find really fascinating about this book, which is that like, yes, I'm glad it, I'm glad it exists, especially in terms of validating experiences and like Mm -hmm. helping Lydia have a vocabulary so that she can explain to her parents or her grandparents why things feel so precarious for Mm -hmm, her in a way mm -hmm. that it might not have for them. Mm -hmm. But I still have a hard time with the idea. Like, obviously, burnout is not just a millennial issue. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to be really careful with the we. And Avery, you and I have, or I've (laughs) gone on and on about this. Um, You know, it's, and it's something that I would love to see more courage from the author in whenever she decides to use the word we to specifically talk about who she is talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea that that I born in 1980 might be dealing that my parents or grandparents would have had it easier in some way is quite frankly, Mm -hmm. confusing. Sure. For me. And this is something that I kind of brought up to Anne, not in terms of the diversity of experiences, but in terms of the kind of generational versus societal elements of burnout. Yeah. 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 Um, Cause that was one of my big questions was like, why center this around a millennial experience? Yes. if you don't have to. So here's, here's how that went. Oh, it's totally a societal problem. But I think that a lot of the symptoms have manifested more acutely in millennials. And that has to do just with our generational timing. So because of the time when we entered into the workforce, it was right into the the great recession or into the aftermath of the great recession. And so that has had incredible effects on every component of our economic standing, how long it took to to reach some sort of economic stability, if it was ever achieved, and also the kind of jobs that a lot of us were able to find. You know, one of the, the most significant stats about the jobs that were added to the economy after the Great Recession is that the majority of them were contingent or temp or, you know, unstable in some way. So, People might have found jobs, but they did not have the sort of stability that would you know, make you feel stable. One thing that I think is is really interesting about this book is that Anne is pointing out a lot of external forces, like some of those that she just mentioned in that mm-hmm. clip. But she's also mentioning things that we've kind of hit, talked around the edges of so far, I think, like the showing up on Instagram and... Um, feeling pressure to have certain kinds of experiences, Mm. which I'm really, I had a hard time with those because, you know, my initial thought is like, okay, but like boundaries, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. like, sure. I understand that there's pressure to like look a certain way on Instagram or whatever, but also like, that's not real pressure. And if if you just you know if you decide that you're not up for that level of bullshit like don't do it i don't think oh, anybody's I disagree. gonna hold that against you you disagree yeah. so good why i Tell mean me i'm more. not i'm not on instagram so in a way i you're not on instagram. in a way i kind of agree <laughs> but in a way i kind of disagree because i don't know i mean like there have been so many moments, especially this year, where I'm like, "Ugh, I should probably delete Twitter." Like I can feel this thing eroding my brain. 
Mm-hmm. It's like I have this pet bird that keeps biting my finger. And I'm like, <laughs> ugh, I don't know. I should probably get rid of the bird. But I'm like, I put, it's like sunk cost, you know? I put so, it feels like labor. It feels like me. It feels like my baby I made. Like I developed mm-hmm. this following. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like, we're, unfortunately, it does matter, you know? Like if people want to reach out and ask me, to whatever be a guest on a podcast or host a show like my <laughs> I was I was just like oh shit did I reach out to her on Twitter for that <laughs> I did not it was an email for the record <laughs> but like it's a it's an asset it's a thing like it has real totally, currency totally and we all buy into yes. it yes even though even though we all hate it we all hate it and we all buy into it not unlike capitalism itself I think that's totally true I guess my thought though is that like you don't have to check it several dozen times a day you know what I mean like I still think that it's possible I don't know I like to think that it's possible for us to have healthy relationships with some of these things that I think and I get that they're designed for us to be addicted to them but Mm -hmm. I just you know it's like if you need to read a book before bed just put down your phone and read a book Mm -hmm. you know and I don't did you see the social dilemma I have not seen the social dilemma no Indira did you see it no do we need to just like stop this taping and go watch it? <laughs> I mean, it's fine, honestly, but it covers a lot of ground that I think. So Indira lives in, in the Bay Area and I used to mm-hmm. live there, too. And so so this this film, this documentary on Netflix uh, called The Social uh-huh. Dilemma really embodies a lot of the sentiment sort of swirling around the Bay Area. I felt like I was always watching these tech giants sort of go on their apology tours, being like, yes, mm. I take credit. I invented the alert for an, for when you get likes, and I'm so sorry. I've dropped out of the company, <laughs> the evil company I work for, and I've amended, I've righted my wrongs by making this TED Talk and writing a book. And every single right. time I would be like, God damn it, you stay in the trenches. Like, you got us <laughs> into this and you need to work to get us out of it. And but basically I bring this up because, you know, they bring up these kind of interesting when you hear about the ways that these these apps were designed mm. to, yes, keep us addicted, but also to keep chirping at us and shouting at us. Yes. Like a tool. There was there's one thing that uh, someone said on the social network. I think it was Tristan Harris, who's kind of the protagonist on the thing. social dilemma. On the, so, the sorry, social the social dilemma. dilemma. Sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he was basically like a tool is something that lies there and waits for you to pick it up. A tool, oh, sure. a hammer doesn't shout at you and is like hammer me. Like there's something that needs to be <laughs> yeah, hammered, yeah. and that is a huge cause of burnout. Mm. It is. I just, I think, I guess the part that especially got me was hearing Anne talk about Instagram and and like scrolling through and being like oh I wish I had that cute haircut oh I wish I spent more time committed to doing more stuff outside oh I wish I had more house plants like whatever the fuck (laughs) which to me is like okay sure but also like I some some good therapy and some solid work on that stuff Mm -hmm. I think I think some of it does have to do with the the just the very unhealthy habit that a lot of us have of of comparison comparing ourselves to others which is like a thing you can kind of teach yourself to do less when you love yourself more Mm -hmm. you know yeah I mean for me I'm more of an Instagram person and that is how good um (laughs) is what it is that's how curators find me you know so I I think it's it's not something that can be fully disconnected from work for a lot of people. And and even in terms of teaching, you know, it's like, that's where your colleagues are following you to see how you are contributing to your field is through Instagram, right? As an artist. So it was also weird for me to read that part of the book to be like, damn, like, you really want these other folks like, vacations and houseplants like so much and right? I yeah. I just was kind of like to be honest if if someone has a, adopted like a cute cat or something I'm just happy for them like that's great yeah yeah and I what I don't know I guess the thing about it that gets me is the idea <laughs> of <laughs> we can get back to the cat thing it's like what's in your control and what's out of your control yeah and especially right now there's like a shit ton of things that are completely out of our control that are fucking insane and really stressful and and so I guess I would 
you know, if there are things I can do that are in my control, like spend less time on Twitter, mm-hmm. like I want to do that. What are you enlightened beings totally severed from jealousy? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> what? So you see somebody else's cute cat How? and you're just like, I hate them and no. that cat? Well, not, no, no, not, not with the, <laughs> not with like the cat, but like, Come on. When you when I see people having fun, I'm like, why am I not having fun? Everyone else is leading a much better life than me. They're all so much more fulfilled. They have cooler outfits. They go to more parties. They're all having more sex. Like, it's not the individual cat. It's the compounded mass of otherness, of other humanity. Just like they're all doing better than me all the time. And I do think that this is okay. That, to bring it back to the book, I think this is what how um, <laughs> gets back to Thank like. You, Avery, I appreciate that. You're welcome. I feel like this idea of of college admissions, where I was actively yeah. pitted against other people, being like, "How unique are you? Mm. You know, are you doing the most? Are you the best? Like, don't do music for fun, but like, are you like good at music? You know, like, do you do you play like an instrument that that we need in our band? Do you you know what I mean? Like, everything had to be optimized and better. And my God, I mean, I was talking about this with my teacher friend because I brought this up with her, and she's like, God, I don't know why I feel like if I'm not the best teacher that I'm not good at all. And I was like, it's because you were trained to only be the best. And she was like, oh, my God, you're right. And she told me about this website that she was encouraged to go on throughout um, high school, which is a crazy (laughs) vulnerable time, where she would go on and, like, import her SAT scores. This is in a public school in New York City. Um Input her scores and, like, compare herself to other and, like, extracurriculars and input, like, race and gender and all these factors and just, like, reduce yourself into a profile. And you're like, wow, everyone else is better than me. I'm never going to get into XYZ school, which will determine the fate of my life, which is what everybody told me and my parents told me because of their fear of their own class precarity. Like, I don't know. I think I the general jealousy and the general... Maybe it's not jealousy. Maybe it's competition. Like that's to me, I find that real and I am in awe and I'm amazed and I'm so happy for both of you. (laughs) Do not feel this way. (laughs) I mean, the the disdain, Avery. I hear it. it. (laughs) Um, I'm going to throw some more shade at you later. But um, what I will say right now is that this is the thing. It's like if you... I don't know. I'll speak for myself as a BIPOC person. Comparison is nothing new. Mm. I don't give a fuck about houseplants or pets. I don't give a fuck <laughs> about like the new jacket you got, the the vacation you went on. I want to know if I'm getting paid the same amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to know if I'm going to get that apartment or not. It's, you know, so it's, I feel like for me, the stakes are really different. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. More on burnout and more from you after the break. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I did ask Anne that question about, you know, what about boundaries? Like how much of this is things that are actually in our control? And I thought her answer was actually really interesting. Let's listen to it. Hmm. The thing about Will 
is it erodes with fatigue. You know, there are great studies that show that when you are in precarious positions, like they, they look specifically at people who are experiencing poverty or, or homelessness, it just erodes your ability to make good decisions. doesn't mean that you're stupider. It just means that like your capacity to think clearly and choose the choice that is clearly better for you, it gets a whole lot more difficult. Um, and, you know, people, <laughs> burnt out middle class people are not the same as people experiencing homelessness, but that same idea that fatigue and exhaustion and lack of stability would make it difficult to choose the choice that's actually healthy for you. That makes total sense to me. It was so interesting partly to hear you say that because like, I wish that had made it into the book, you know? Mm. I mean, something I wonder in this is like, she made it, she did a, I, I enjoyed her historical uh, context of why millennials are different than boomers but looking at Gen Z, I'm like, sure, you know, I graduated with the recession looming over me, but it was nothing like what Gen Z graduated into, you know? Right, right. And I think I wanted some more perspective on not necessarily why. I mean, again, she couldn't say, like, why we are all held in extreme precarity under capitalism. Like, that's not a catchy title. So I understand, like, why millennials <laughs> are the burnout generation is, like, the sugar pill that helps the medicine go down. Yep. Like, she yep. had to make it that For way. For sure. Yes. But the thing that I wanted to know is just, like, you know, in the words of David after dentist, like, is this real life? Like, is this just how it is forever now? Mm. <laughs> is this not a millennial thing? Is this just, is this just how it is? Wait, did you just refer to that amazing video of the child on drugs in the backseat of a car after having gone to the dentist? Very well summarized, <laughs> precisely. He just looks up and goes, is this audio, real huh? life? And I swear, <laughs> I see that little gif like in the morning before I before I truly wake up. It's like, is this we're still ha- we're still doing this? Wow. Um, But anyway, yeah, it's just like, I don't know if this is necessarily like millennials are uniquely, you know, burdened or is it? Yeah. Just from here on out, because of this confluence of factors, this is what life is now. And it's just going to keep getting harder until big things change. Um, Let's listen to another voicemail. This is Liz. You know that it's Liz from Roseville, and I, oh, I do not know the last time I felt a book so deeply in my core as can't even. And I am so glad you picked it because it had been on my list, and I had not really thought I was going to take the time to read it, to be honest. But so I listened to it on audio, and my husband and I listened to the last few chapters together. He described it as a really good therapy session. Mm. Um, But listening, I just felt as though my bone weariness tired had a reason and that it wasn't me. I don't quite feel as guilty for feeling as though I can't do more. And I feel as though I need to say no more often. Um, Ultimately, my husband wished that there was more action items at the end of the book. But... I was glad that I did not have another to-do list or project that I was going to fail at again. Mm. I can't wait to hear what everybody else thinks, too. Bye. So, yeah, what did y'all think? I th- I feel like Liz embodied that really well. And even Anne talked about it. She mm. was like, I could have put a list of things for you to do or books to read at the end of this. But that's just more stuff for you to do and feel bad that you didn't do. <laughs> I was a little disappointed by that, though. I mean, it's also kind of a nice cop out, right? <laughs> Where mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, and. And even when I interviewed her, she's a lot of like when you think about solutions to burnout, a lot of it is is about systemic things. It's about perhaps some kind of universal income. It's about, Mm -hmm. you know, considering things like paid parental leave across Mm -hmm. the board. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of ways that the society that we're in could certainly help us out a lot more than it is now. I mean, I see where Anne Helen Peterson is coming from with this. Like, yes, these are so much larger and beyond our control. But I mean, and I was texting Indira about this, like the the moment, one nail that I thought she really hit on the head that really changed a lot for me. And I was like, damn, I think we could do something about this was her discussion about consultants and consultancy Mm. was like, whoa, basically. She was talking about how these companies 
like McKinsey and Deloitte, which are considered, you know, these like cool, prestigious jobs. And they kind of scrape the best of the best, you know, cream of the crop off of the graduating college class, drop them into various companies that they have no stake in Mm -hmm. and make them perform this like extremely stressful labor at this really high velocity, almost not intentionally, but, you know, the business model is sort of like burn these kids out, churn and burn, churn and burn. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they go on to these other organizations and what these consultants do, like these other companies ask McKinsey or Deloitte to come in and basically make their company more efficient, which is a way of saying, like, whittle down the work staff, privatize where you can, make profit the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And so it's these um, contractors coming in, telling companies to use more contractors, Mm -hmm. making the workplace more and more unstable. And then, yeah, basically these consultants get burnt out. They go on to other jobs, other companies, and continue this ethos. And so it creates a sort of graduating class of people who truly believe in this sort of like lean, mean, market-first mentality. And I think one of the answers in this is like, stop making these jobs cool. Like these are not <laughs> cool jobs. Do not be proud that your that your child, you know, has the right stuff to work for one of these companies. Mm-hmm. These are bad. Like in the same way, like I think this happened in a huge way for big finance after the recession. I think this happened for like big oil. There are these companies that carry a stigma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these don't yet. So let's give them one. Let's like mm-hmm. really talk mm-hmm. about it. And I thought that would have been a really, you know, again, this is not a book about uh, the American state of precarity. It's a book about millennial burnout. So that mm-hmm. is not the sole cause of millennial burnout. But to mm-hmm. me, that was a really salient, fascinating takeaway. And to Indira's point, like it did come from her own experience. That's about mm-hmm. white mm-hmm. middle class and upper middle class people. And it mm-hmm. affects everyone and Mm -hmm. that was fascinating Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean i i feel like if if we were to shift a culture where in there's no stigma around being a worker Mm, then we don't need cool jobs (laughs) yeah right you know what i mean but there's so much stigma around work having to work being a worker, associating mm. ourselves with labor movements. Wait, Indira, you're an artist. You have a really cool job. You do have a super cool job. I know I'm idealizing it, but I'm also trying to make you fight me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that what actually goes into being a freelancer is not something that most people would actually want to sign up for, mm-hmm. you know? And to, I think Greta, to your point around like um, the boundaries thing, and actually to the caller's point around saying no to more stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, for me, I sent an email this week to someone who had just sent me a barrage like over the weekend mm-hmm. And I wrote them back on Monday and I said, you know, I don't actually answer emails on weekends anymore. So thank you. And just know that if you, you're welcome to send me a note, you're welcome to send me 10 notes, but I Mm -hmm. I will be working Monday through Friday. And they were so shocked. And it wasn't even that I was saying outright no to this person. Mm -hmm. I was just saying not now. And I feel like, you know, I've been working professionally as an artist for, I don't know, uh, almost 15 years or something. And it has taken me this long to feel like I can even do that without risking an entire gig. Hmm. And that's not sustainable, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that there is we have to exercise agency where we can find it. And if it's literally my fingertips at the keyboard saying like, yes, I have received your message. I will get back to you by the end of the week when I know more details and that people have Mm -hmm. to wait. There's only so much that I can do. I think one of the things about being an artist is that it's just me. There's no one else behind the curtain. (laughs) 
it's you running back and forth from exactly. behind the curtain. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. One thing that Anne mentioned as we were talking about this part is um, she cited a, a tweet that I think Linda Holmes had written earlier in the week, a host of Pop Culture Happy Hour, that essentially said, like, everyone in their life just needs a really good no person. Yes. And I do just really love that idea. You know, it's like that person who you can just be like, hey, there's this thing. And they're just like, nope. <laughs> Like, you don't need to do that. It's not worth your time. Just say no. I am on, I actually have a good friend. I'm on a no committee. It's the most fun. (laughs) Okay, I heard that interview and I totally misinterpreted that and thought that and Helen Peterson was implying that you should have like an imaginary friend that helps you say no. Be like, oh, I can't. I have something with Peter, you know, like... (laughs) Your steady scapegoat. Your excuse? That's hilarious. Yeah, and I was like, that's I mean, genius. Like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> oh, my god! Oh, my goodness. So we don't have too much more time, but I do. I'm curious to ask each of you. I think the saying no thing is good. I think the, you know, responding with the, like, I'll get back to you when I can thing is good. Is there... Are there any other maybe tricks or things that you would like to employ that maybe you aren't right now, but are things that you could like actually start doing tomorrow to help yourselves live lives that do feel like they have some closer semblance to balance? Voting. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I feel like part of this whole thing is that we can't like life hack it away, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I, over the past few years, I've chosen to be more communicative about moments of illness in my life on Instagram as well. And to do like at the end of the year to do kind of like a bittersweet recap, you know, because I use it primarily to, to talk about things that I've, I'm doing or that I've won and, and whatnot. And not that I feel like I need to share everything in my personal life, you know, with social mm-hmm. media, certainly not. But I do think that it is important to create some visibility around, yeah, what it means to to have a full life and that, yes, I can still be working. And I'm also having a hysterectomy on November 3rd, hmm. you know, and that all of that coexists and that it's actually probably not that unusual. We're just not used to talking about all of those um, Mm. things at the same time. So maybe it's a way of creating a more complex brand for myself, but I think Mm. that at core, it's a way to feel more honest, I think. Takes the pressure off. Honest is the word, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, are you actually getting hysterectomy, hysterectomy on November 3rd? Voting for a better quality of life for myself. It's true. Wow. <laughs> no, I, I will that's... be thinking about you. Thank you. I'll be listening to Nerdette while I recover. <laughs> I mean, no pressure. Wow. <laughs> no, but I think that's such a good point, Indira. Like so much of this is about ta- just like talking about it. And this 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 mm-hmm. fact that we were mm-hmm. all so alienated from each other. We were like, oh my God, everyone else is exhausted. Like everyone mm-hmm. else is tired. <laughs> like why weren't, why didn't we all figure this out ourselves? So like, I do want to thank this, this article, the article in the book for at least yes. letting people be in that sort of community and hopefully maybe opening the door to be as vulnerable as as Indira is, is being. And also I love that because it's like taking the tools of of burnout and like turning them against themselves, you know, like instead using social media as this way of being radically honest and transparent. Yeah, I I love it. I think it's super important. And I don't know, it's funny because, I mean, we've talked for almost an hour and like, we could talk like, I, I don't know, I feel like this is a conversation that could happen once a week for a while, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. there's just so many layers to all of it. There's just so much to unpack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I feel like it's, you could do a year long book club just on this topic alone. Mm-hmm. Just in the listening to the clips that people have also called in about, I feel like, um, it's really moving, actually. I think it takes a lot of courage to admit that one is fatigued. Yeah, yeah. 
I think it totally does. You two are the best. This has been such a pleasure to talk with you about it. And thank you so much for sharing your experiences and and reading this book and, you know, taking the time because that's a really big deal. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be invited. Such a great panel. Be sure to check out Avery's podcast from The Cut. Just Google The Cut Podcast and you'll find it. And why not follow Indira on Instagram? You can find them at Indira Allegra. If you're like, wow, I want to read a bunch of other books about this topic, you are in luck because Indira actually wrote up a really great list of recommendations. We're going to share those on our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com slash groups slash nerdette HQ and become a member there. That's it for this month's book club. I do have a quick announcement for you. Some, uh, what is that called? Like at church when people have business in the beginning of the service, I forget, but anyway, here we are, uh, starting in November, we're actually going to change our book club schedule a little bit. It's going to go on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. So that means second Tuesday of the month is going to be the spoiler free author chat. And then fourth Tuesday of the month is going to be the spoiler full podcast discussion. If you're like, well, what's November's book? Wouldn't you love to know? Well, you can find out on Instagram. We are at Nerdat Podcast. You'll find a post first thing there on November 1st. Thanks for listening and for all your thoughtful voicemails. Y'all are the best. Our show is produced by me and Justin Bull. Our intern is Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. We will see you next Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.